0: Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Uh, you know, I'm I'm sitting down there chuckling a little bit um, as Mark talks about the story that we tell uh, every year because the passage that we're going to cover today um, to the best of my knowledge is not one that we tell every year. It's part of the big story that we tell every year uh, but um, this is one that, that immediately follows the Christmas story, almost immediately follows the Christmas story. And so I guess you could say it's part of the Christmas story, but it's one that we don't spend much time on uh, at all. But then Mark turned around and helped me out again, too, uh, when he said, you know, it becomes part of who we are. Because this story that we're reading today, and I I always hesitate to use the word story because it makes it sound like I think it's a, a fable. It's not. It's historical. Y'all know what I mean when I say story. Uh, It's a passage about Jesus as a little boy. It's the only one of these that we have in the Bible. And y'all, there are lots of legends about it, okay? There's, There's one legend out there that's really old. I mean, like, to the tune of... You know, maybe 16, 1700 years old. There's this legend of Jesus outside with his brothers and sisters playing with a ball, and he kicks it and it kills a bird, and so he resurrects the bird. And I'm like, you know, this, this is, we have a hard time with this big gap that exists. Maybe none of y'all are like me. I have a problem with silence. I don't, I'm uncomfortable inside. Is anybody else uncomfortable in silence? At all. I'm uncomfortable in silence. If there's a long period. And Emily's down here laughing. She knows it's true. If there's a long period of silence. And I'm sitting there. I'm just I'm going to start talking. Because the silence makes me uncomfortable. If somebody starts talking. Then I will remain quiet. But I need to be. I can't even sleep in silence. I've even got these little soft headphones. That, that I can listen to someone talking. Because if I don't. My brain's not going to shut off. I have to let someone else talk so they can do the thinking for me. That way I can go to sleep. I don't do well in silence. I think that's part of the human condition to a degree. That maybe if it's not talking, it's filling in the gaps. And really, honestly, there's this giant gap in the life of Christ that we have this big, massive holiday called Christmas that has to do with His birth. And then we have Easter that has to do with his crucifixion and resurrection. And we've got the three years of his ministry, but Jesus was around 33 when he died. So there are 30 years of his life that, man, we just don't have much of anything except this one passage in Luke 2. That gives us a glimpse of Jesus as a little boy. And if it's in this book, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit and is therefore profitable for us. Correct? So that means there is something in this passage for us about Jesus as a little boy. That every single one of us from cradle to grave can benefit from. So if you'll stand with me out of the respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to start, I know the the bulletin says verse 41, and that's where we're going to start in the sermon, but I'm going to start in 39 so that we kind of pick up at the end of the story. Luke chapter 2 verse 39, So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, They returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. His mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. And then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Father, I pray that you would help us to know a little bit better who Jesus is today And by extension, know ourselves a little bit better from that and how we relate to Him and what You have in store for us in Him if we will just listen. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, let's go ahead and and spoil the sermon before we even really get started. This sermon is a sermon about identity. What do I mean when I say identity? I mean identity as in who are we Who is Jesus and what are we going to do about it? Uh, Those are big, important questions. Who are we is a massively important question that doesn't just determine what we think about ourselves. It determines how we live. It determines whether or not we're worthy of value. It determines whether or not we're worthy of dignity. It determines whether or not we even think of ourselves as worth saving. Who are we? Second, who is Jesus? Well, depending on who Jesus is, one of my favorite quotes in the history of the world is is C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. Where he says there are only three options as to who Jesus can be. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. He can't be anything else. Because he claims to be God. If he claimed to be God knowing he wasn't, then he is a liar. And a horrible liar at that because he told everyone to obey him because he was God. So if you claim to be God knowing you're not, that makes you a pretty horrible person because folks are going to orient their lives around you. If you claim to be God when you're not, but you believe you are, then you're crazy. By the way, people do that all the time. People do that all the time, claiming to be God, thinking they are But they're actually not. In that case, he's a lunatic. You pat him on the back and you ignore him. But if he claims to be God and he's neither a liar nor a lunatic, that only leaves one other option. He's Lord. So C.S. Lewis said, don't come to me with this patronizing nonsense of him being some good moral teacher because anybody who said the things Jesus said would not be a good moral teacher if he was not God. He would be the world's worst liar in the history or the world's biggest lunatic. But since he is neither of those, that only leaves the option Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, then he plays a big role in our identity, who we are, because if Jesus is Lord, if he is God, you are who he says you are. And we don't really get a vote. <laughs> If he says you're somebody, you're somebody. And then finally, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? So first, let's look at this question of who are we in verses 41 through 45. Now, basic Bible study rule. One of the things you look for is things that are repeated. When a, a biblical author says something over and over and over and over again, that's something that should catch your attention. And there's a little bit of that going on in verses 41 through 35, 45. In verse 41, we see who went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover? His parents, right? So, church, who were his parents? Mary and Joseph, Right? Let's just Now, I know you're probably thinking in your mind, this is a trick question. Because we know Joseph's not his father. And by the way, Mary and Joseph know that too. In fact, they might be the only people on the planet who both know and believe that. Okay? Everybody else is probably, you know, still cutting the side eye at Mary because of how this all went down. Right? But Mary and Joseph know that Mary's Jesus' mama, but Joseph is not Jesus' daddy in the traditional sense. Now he's his adoptive father. He's his adoptive caretaker, yes. And he functioned as a parent, but Joseph was not his father. But functionally, societally, Jesus is probably 12, he's 12 years old at this point. Joseph has been daddy for 12 years. Okay? Remember, don't, don't think of Jesus as, uh, you've got to be careful how you say this, because yes, He's God, but He's also fully human. I can just about guarantee you that at some point, Jesus reached up His arms to Joseph and said, Abba, Abba, Daddy, Daddy, come here. Because Joseph changed diapers. Joseph probably burped Him. Joseph took care of Him. Okay, so Joseph has been daddy for 12 years. Okay, so his parents, okay, went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. That There were lots of feasts in the Jewish religious calendar. Some of them were unique. And if you wanted to follow Passover the way it was written down in the law, there was only one place to do it. And do it right. You had to go to the temple, which was in Jerusalem. That was the one way to do it. So his family, like a good Jewish family, gets up and goes to Passover in Jerusalem. So they get up and they go to the temple. And when... He was 12 years old. They went up to Jerusalem according to the feast. So some of the reading that I did this week said typically around ages 13 or so, that's when you have, I mean, you still see Jewish families do it today. They have a bar mitzvah, right? Uh, <clears throat> bar mitzvah just means son of, the, son of the law or son of the covenant. Bar, son, mitzvah, uh, uh, covenant, law, rule, Uh, commandment, things like that. So, a son of the commandment. That's a way of ceremonially saying this child has now grown into someone who has all of the responsibilities of the covenant now incumbent upon them. So, A child may not have been responsible... A child's not responsible for sacrifices. A child's not responsible... But the minute you grow into Jewish adulthood, you start functioning like a man. And there's a lot of new things that a child would have to get used to. So it was very wise for families, you know, at 11, 12 years old, to start bringing him along with dad... So they can start seeing this is how this is done. Watch what your dad does. Watch where your dad goes. Learn to imitate it. Because when you turn 13 and you become a man, all of these responsibilities are yours. So this is probably what's going on. That Jesus is now 12, he's getting ready to turn 13, Jewish manhood is right around the corner, so let's take him with us to the temple so that he can start figuring this out. It's pretty funny, isn't it? Because in just a few minutes, he's about to be schooling some other people. But let's take him to the temple. So his parents are thinking like parents. We want to prepare our child. We want to get ready for him to to move into adulthood. So they take him up to the feast, and when they had finished the days, as they returned, Passover was a, an extended period, <clears throat> the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. and some of y'all have maybe English standard versions. Where are my new American standard people? I know I got a few of y'all, okay. Any of y'all with King James, it says Joseph and his mother, correct? Yeah, if you've got a King James, it says Joseph and his mother. If you've got a New American Standard or an ESV, it says what? His His parents. Okay. The ESV and the New American Standard are based on older but fewer manuscripts. Okay, So the oldest manuscripts we have say his parents. The King James is based on more recent but more numerous manuscripts. That's why it's called the majority text. That the majority of manuscripts we have read Joseph and his mother. What difference does it make? This is a legitimate question. The legitimate answer, it doesn't. But, I will say that the reason that it doesn't make a difference has to do with the point of this passage and the King James is leaning into that a little bit more. Eventually, at the end of the day, we're all going to be at the same place. But when the King James says Joseph and his mother, that makes a distinction, doesn't it? There's a difference between saying his parents And Joseph and his mother. Because it identifies Joseph as someone other than his what? That Mary is in fact his biological mother. But Joseph is not his biological father. It accentuates Jesus' identity as more than just their child. I'll say, Josh well, what do I do about the fact that my Bible says his parents? You don't do anything, because at the end of this passage, they both mean the same thing. It doesn't need to cause you any consternation, uh, because there is a manuscript difference there, because it doesn't affect the meaning. I just want to let you all know that there, so that if somebody tries to be smart and snarky one day and go, well, we don't know what the Bible says. Sure we do. We know exactly what it means. Um... Joseph and his mother did not know it. They don't know that Jesus is lingering behind in Jerusalem. But supposing him to have been in the company, probably their whole family is traveling together. They went a day's journey. So they've traveled an entire day and sought him among their what? Relatives. Relatives, Acquaintances. They're still thinking of Jesus as... This is one of our kids. He is just a member, he is a member of our family. His relatives, our acquaintances. That these connections, these relationships define Jesus to them right now. And then they don't find him and they panic because they've lost God. Have you ever thought about that? Think about Mary's panic right now. The son of the most high who will be given the throne of his father David, who will be salvation for his people, is somewhere back there in that metropolis a day's ride away because you left him there. Oh no. Honey, we've got to turn around. Why? I lost the Savior of the world. He's back in Jerusalem. We've got to go find him. Okay. Turn the camel around. So they turn around and they head back to Jerusalem. There is a repeated emphasis on Jesus' family connections in this passage. His parents, his relatives, his acquaintances, his mother, Joseph. That's how they defined themselves. That's how Luke defines them. That Mary and Joseph are defined as Jesus' parents. These other people are defined as His relatives and acquaintances. Y'all, there are tons of ways to define your identity. You can identify yourself like they did, as family. Now, am I saying that it was a bad thing for Mary to think of herself as His mama? No. Am I saying it was a bad thing for Joseph to think of himself as Jesus' daddy? Yes, not in the biological sense. But Scripture very clearly says Joseph was a righteous man. There's a reason that God put Joseph in that position. I don't want want us to damn Joseph just because he was not Jesus' father in the traditional sense. Man, as a man, I couldn't think of a higher honor than being called to do what Joseph was called to do. Let's not down him. But there is a problem when you think of yourself merely as a parent. You ever met a parent who defines themselves by their child? When their kid leaves the house, it's like they just crumple because their life has revolved around their child for 18 years. You ever seen a marriage fall apart because for 18 years the only thing holding parents together was the kids? <clears throat> that they defined themselves strictly by parent and then once that is yanked away by the passage of time? What are we anymore? Because we've basically been co-parents more so than husband or wife for 18 years we spent all of our time and all of our effort on this baby that became a child that became an adult and now we don't know how to relate to any, more, any each other anymore because our identity was that of parent you ever met anybody identified by their job <clears throat> this is particularly a western phenomenon that the first two questions you ask somebody are what's your name and what do you do sometimes that's even how we introduce ourselves I found myself doing it, and and I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with it as long as you don't take it overboard. Hi, my name's Josh Mosley. I'm the pastor at Stapleton Baptist Church. Why don't we say things like, hi, my name's Josh Mosley. I'm Margaret's dad. If I'm at the daycare, that's what I do. Hi, my name's Josh Mosley. I'm I'm Emily's husband. Hi, my name's Josh Mosley. I'm Wanda's son. But no, it's hi. I'm Josh Mosley. I'm the pastor at Stapleton Baptist Church. If I have somebody identify by their job, they get their identity from their job. What about their education? Meet people that, that they, This is their they. This is their identity because I went to school here. I've attained this level of education. Wealth. If I've got money, I'm good. You ever met anybody like that? In 2019, we got to handle this with kid gloves because we actually have kids. <laughs> Hi, I'm an L, or I'm a G, or I'm a B, or I'm a T, or I'm a Q, or I'm an etc. Whatever else we want to add to the end of the acronym. I define myself by that. And if you're opposed to that lifestyle, then you're not just opposed to a particular way of living, you're opposed to me. Because that is me. I identify as that. That is where my identity comes from. But if you're defined by your job and you lose it, have you lost yourself? If you're defined by your kids and they leave, has yourself left? If you define yourself by your educational level, what happens when it's not enough? Are you not enough? If you define yourself by your wealth, what happens in a recession? What happens when it's gone? Have you wasted away? If you define yourself by your intimate preferences, hope that was a PG way to put it, if you define yourself by your intimate preferences, are you nothing more than an urge? As these temporal things get elevated, your total humanity actually gets diminished. That God did not create you to be a parent. God did not create you to be a husband. God did not create you to be a wife. God did not create you to be a teacher. God did not create me to be a preacher. God did not create us to be wealthy. God did not create us to be poor. God did not create us to to. Chase any number of urges God created us to be men and women made in His image in His likeness ruling over the earth and subduing it that's who God created you to be that's your ultimate identity that God defines us at birth as a man or as a woman and gives us a mission to bear His image and to rule over this earth and subdue it in submission to Him and everything else we do is a function of that, and we lose our humanity. We lose who God made us to be when we pick these little things from Earth out, and they become what we define ourselves by, rather than looking and saying, "Whose image am I made in? Who do I exist for? What is the reason that I give that I take breath? A fantastic Christian musician by the name of Lecrae said, if we live for men's acceptance, we will die by their rejection. But look at what Jesus had to say. Whether you define yourself by, by family relationships, job, wealth, education... Could you think of anything as honorable as being an actual family member of Jesus? Could you imagine being born and grow up and be eight years old and your mom's Mary and your dad's Joseph and your brother Yeshua's playing outside with a ball, probably not resurrecting birds? Can you imagine saying, oh yeah, that's my brother Jesus? Can you imagine that? And yet look at what Jesus says in Mark 3. Verse 32, a multitude was sitting around him and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my mother and brother and sister. Jesus said, ultimately, your identity ought to be determined by your relationship to God and your obedience to him. Anything else is temporal. Because the reality is, if you call yourself a parent, one day your kids will move out. If you call yourself a child of your parents, one day your parents will pass away. If you call yourself a job, one day you will get fired, laid off, or retire. If you call yourself wealth, one day you will find out that there is no such thing as a U-Haul following a hearse. If you define yourself by your education, one day you'll find out that the world has learned new things while you did not, and education has passed you by. But do you know what does not change? That you are a man, woman, boy, or girl created in the image of God to rule over the earth and subdue it in submission to Him, bearing His image and giving Him glory. That will never change. That is who you are. Grab on to it like a bulldog and don't let it go. Your temporal achievements, relationships, and status does not determine who you are. Who are you? And second, who is he? Now look at verse forty six. I got anxious and flipped pages. Verse 46. Now it was that after three days, now by the way, they were one day out, right? So they turn around and they come back. So that's one day. After three days, they looked for him for two days. Parents, have you had, are you in cardiac arrest yet? Have you ever, have your child ever gone missing for two plus days? Because you've got to remember, they're panicking the whole day, probably back. Because they're driving back, camel riding back to Jerusalem. Their child's not with them. So wherever they are, he's not with them. And then they get back, and they've got to look for him for two more days before they find him. Now so it was, after three days, they found him in the temple. Been looking for your kid all week long. He's just sitting at church sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. By the way, amazed sounds positive. But as a parent, have you ever been amazed at something your child did? It's not always positive, is it? Have you ever just been absolutely stunned? That your child thought something was a good idea. Yesterday, we were sitting on the floor playing, and Margaret got really amped up, and she was really excited, and she just went ah, and just popped Emily, just reared back, just I mean, it was on the arm, just, and we both just kind of went. Like where did that come from? We were playing with a baby doll, weren't we? And she just gets excited about something and just pew, just smacks Emily in the arm. And we had no idea. We were flabbergasted. So I got down and I said, "Margaret." Mm-hmm. I was amazed. Amazed is not always positive. I don't think this is positive. They were amazed when they saw Him. Like, yes, it's great that you're hanging out with the teachers and they're stunned by your understanding. And you're, it's, they're stunned that you understand them and that you're giving great. This is all great, Jesus. But we're amazed that you've been here for three days. And his mother said to him, this is your clue that it's not positive, Son! Correct statement, right? Mary is in fact Jesus' mother. Correct. Son, why have you done this to us? Look, this verse right here is why the difference between New American Standard and King James doesn't matter. What does Mary say? Your father and I. It doesn't matter what translation you're reading out of, that verse reads the same. Your father and I have sought you anxiously. Now, maybe she and Joseph sought him anxiously, but you know who wasn't anxiously searching for him? His father. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be... Now your King James says about my father's business. Your ESV, your New American Standard says in my father's house. This is not manuscript differences. This is one Greek phrase that can be translated in two different ways. The King James tradition has chosen to translate it be about my father's business. The New American Standard and ESV have chosen to translate it as in my father's house. I think that is probably the correct translation because one of the commentaries I read made a good point. It it actually, I I, I quoted it here. The Greek could be rendered about my father's business, but my father's house is probably right. For the father's business could be done in many places. His parents' problem was where he was, not what he was doing. They would be perfectly fine if he was sitting in the synagogue in Nazareth going back and forth with the teachers, wouldn't they? That's no issue. Yeah, Jesus, you can spend three days down the street. We know the, we know the rabbi. We know it's probably, we're all family members here. You could probably hang out and then come home when, when you need to eat. You know, whatever. But this is not that case. This is Jerusalem. This is the equivalent of your child getting lost in Atlanta or rather your child being in Atlanta and you not knowing where they are. They didn't have a problem with what he was doing. They had a problem with where he was. And so Jesus says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now wait a minute. Mary just said your father and I have been searching for you anxiously. And Jesus just said, I've been in my father's house the whole time. But they did not understand the statement which He spoke to them. That in this one moment, in this moment of shock and relief and anxiety, they're probably just happy that they found Jesus. But they haven't yet processed that Jesus just made a pretty strong statement at 12 years old. My father did not seek me anxiously because I was in his house the whole time. Jesus knew who he was. Now, this was not disrespectful to Mary and Joseph. This was not disobedient. Jesus is not being rebellious. He's just doing what seems good to him at the time. And it's not bad. He's just staying in his father's house. Who is Jesus? Now a bunch of us in here are church folks. Okay. So we probably have. Best case the same. Worst case similar (laughs) answers. About who Jesus is. Spoiler alert, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay? That's who Jesus is. He knew that. At the very least, most of us probably say we know that. But who is Jesus is the most important question you will ever have to answer. Because its answer is not one of just mental assent. It's not one where you just have information stored in your brain. It's one where it affects the entire trajectory, purpose, and meaning of your life. For example, in John 19, starting in verse 12, Jesus is on trial before Pilate. And the Jews answered Pilate and said, We have a law, and according to our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, what saying? That he was the Son of God. Because Pilate was not a Jew. Okay? Pilate was not a Jew. Pilate was a Roman. He was a Roman pagan. And if you know the Roman pagan religious mythos, which you probably do, you probably know them as Zeus and Hera and Ares and Apollo and all these guys, Athena. You probably know them that way. The Romans would have known them as Jupiter and Mars and uh, <clears throat> Saturn and things like that. You would have, they would have known the gods that way. And if you know their mythos, you know that in the Roman pantheon, gods have kids all the time. Hercules was a child of Zeus and a human woman. Right? So kind of a demigod kind of thing. And what happens in all of these ancient stories when you mess with the kids of the gods? The gods mess with you. And it doesn't go well, does it? So Pilate hears this, that the Jews say he claims to be the son of God, and Pilate starts shaking. Because he already feels like something is wrong with this. So he goes back to Jesus and says to Him, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to Him, Are you not speaking to Me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? This is still part of the inquiry. Pilate is trying to establish That I am above you, you are below me. But Jesus does not accept that premise. He says you could have no power against me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Pilate heard everything he needed to hear. In verse 12a it says then from then on Pilate sought to release him. That Pilate figured it is in fact possible that this man is descended from a God. Now he's not a Jew. He doesn't think in terms of the God. But Pilate is willing to think this guy may be a son of the gods. And if he is, I don't want to cross him. Now we don't think in terms of multiple gods. Most of us in western culture don't. Plenty of people all over the rest of the world still do. But most of us, it's a question, not, it's a question of which God is the one that's there. Jesus claimed to be that God. If Jesus is that God, then what he says goes. About what we do, about who we are. John 8:18 8, and 19 says, "I am the one who bears witness of myself and the Father who sent me bears witness of me." And they said to him, "Where is your father?" Again with the father thing. And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father. That knowing Jesus is a prerequisite to knowing his father. If you claim to know God, but do not know Jesus as his son, whoever it is you think you know is not God. Matthew seven twenty four through 27 Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. That if you believe Jesus is God, you will believe that what he says is important enough to obey it. If you don't believe Jesus is God, then you may as well just dismiss it out of hand. That means if you think that your main identity is that of a parent and Jesus says, no, if anyone who does not love me more than their entire family, they're not worthy of me, then you go, the best way for me to be a parent is to to follow Jesus. If you think of your identity as coming from your job and Jesus says anyone having put his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom of God, then that means your job is now subservient to Jesus. If you identify yourself by a biological urge, then you will look at God's Word and say, it doesn't matter if the urge never goes away. I will follow Jesus and take up my cross and deny myself and follow Him. Yeah, I think this is a blind spot that the church has has shied away from. Self denial. God does not promise that He is going to fulfill your every desire. Some of your desires may actually be wicked. I don't want to chase this rabbit all that far, but I think it's applicable to multiple things, so I'm going to chase the rabbit. So hold on to your, 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 your belts. I'm scared. <laughs> I think we waste our time with the I was, I was born like this argument. I think it's a waste of time. I don't think we should get into that because I don't think it makes a difference whether someone was born with a particular desire or not. Because the assumption is if I was born with this particular inclination, that must mean it's okay. That's usually the argument, right? If I was born with this particular inclination, that means it's okay. Well, some people are born predisposed to be alcoholics, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Nobody makes that argument about, about alcoholism. Some people are born predisposed to all kinds of things. Does that mean that any inclination that you feel that comes out of your heart, it's natural. Therefore, it should be embraced and loved. No, because the Sermon on the Mount says the heart is the seat of all of this wickedness that comes out of us. Some people may desire people that they're not supposed to desire. Some people may desire substances that they're not supposed to desire. Some people may desire wealth that they're not supposed to desire. Some people may desire recognition that they're not supposed to desire. I don't care if you were born with a desire or not. That's not your identity. You are a man, woman, boy, or girl created in the image of God. And no matter what your fallen humanity may feel, Jesus defines your identity. So stop asking how you were born and start asking how you're supposed to be when you're born. Born again take up your cross deny yourself and follow me had somebody ask me one time but Josh I prayed and prayed and prayed that the desire would go away and Jesus hasn't taken it away and he might never so you mean I'm supposed to live my life alone no you're supposed to live your life with Jesus that's not alone Sure, you may never get married. You might not. Well, I can't deny myself. With the Holy Spirit, you can. The question is, are you willing to? Can't and won't are two different words. And I'm not angry. I'm pained over it. Because at the end of every single one of these roads that is not Jesus is death. And any time you choose to divide... My last point is actually that. So I should probably do that. Question, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about Jesus being God and therefore defining your identity? Verse 51, it says, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. The events of this passage end somewhat unceremoniously, don't they? They pick Jesus up, put him back on the camel, and they go home. That's it. It's the end of the story. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. His parents want want him to come back with them. And he does. He doesn't argue, does he? He doesn't rebel. He goes back. But Mary doesn't forget what happened that day. Mary has this really admirable personality trait where she doesn't just experience something and then let it roll off of her like water over a duck's back. She ponders it. She thinks about it. She rolls it over in her head. That he is in a very real sense her son, but he's not merely her son. He's more than that. And that affected her beyond that day. For example, in John chapter 2, every Baptist's favorite miracle. You know the one I'm talking about. They're at a wedding. (laughs) And something runs out. What is it, Baptists? The wine at the wedding runs out. And Mary, we got to dive into ancient social structure right now. Mary being a woman, there was a very defined social structure in the ancient world. And... I didn't quote it from my commentary, but it kind of outlined the way it functioned, was that the business world, the outside world, was kind of the the domain of the man of the family. He would go out, he would make the business deals, he was typically the one working the trade, he would handle family negotiations and things like that. But inside the home was the domain of the woman. That she kept it running like a well-oiled machine. That that was kind of her area of family responsibility. And the children, particularly in social situations, were to listen to the commands of the woman. Because if she was hosting or doing something, she was in charge. She said, you know, I need more of this. I need you over there. I need you doing this. I need you doing that. I need you doing that. Husband, I need you doing this. And they were to do it. Because she was running the show. And Mary seems to be in a hosting capacity at this wedding. Because their family is there. And there is a crisis. The wine has run out. And by the way, at a wedding, if the the bridegroom's family did not provide a sufficient celebration, that was actually able to be litigated. You could be sued in open court for shaming your wife by not providing an adequate ceremony. So this was a crisis. This is a big issue. It would have brought great embarrassment. So Mary in full running the show mode is dealing with this crisis and she looks at Jesus like her son and says, Son, we out of wine. The implication being, figure this out. She's giving him an order. And Jesus says, respectfully, this is not... In, in 21st century culture, this might sound disrespectful, but this is a term of endearment here. This is not disrespectful. Jesus says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. This completely and totally bucked the social order. Because any other child would have said, yes, mother, I'm on it. But Jesus says, that's not my concern. My hour's not here yet. And does Mary roll up her sleeves and go, Son, I'm going to tell you. I'm your mama, and you better listen. Does she, does she do that? No. The lesson comes back, and his mother looks at the servants and says, Whatever he says to you, do it. This is an admission and a handing over of authority to Jesus from Mary that says, "I know in any other normal situation you would be listening to me, but not today. Today, He's in charge. I'm giving that up. My normal social standing, my normal social rank, my normal place in this hosting, my normal place of familial authority, my normal everything, norm, I have a new normal, and it's following Him. And y'all need to listen to him. Mary remembered that. She remembered this event. So here's my question to you If Jesus is God, then you are who he says you are. It doesn't matter what you feel, it doesn't matter really what you think. That if Jesus says, you are a man made in my image, you are a woman made in my image, that I have put on this planet to rule over this earth and subdue it in submission to me, enjoying all the blessings of a relationship with me, and all you have to do is take it. Those blessings are there for you if you will just say you are right King Jesus, I am who you say I am. Because you are God, all his blessings are yours. But if you look at King Jesus and say, no, you're wrong. He's not wrong. You are. But in the very same beginning of this Bible that God said, I will make the man and woman in my image to rule over this earth and subdue it, God put a tree smack in the middle of that garden that let them make a choice whether or not they were going to listen to it. You can't choose to not be someone God has made you to be. But you can choose to deny God's call and pretend to be something else until it eventually kills you. You can. God made you as a man or a woman in His image to rule over this earth and subdue it and enjoy eternal life with Him if you will just come to Him. If you want to know how to do that, Mark and Joyce are about to leave us in a couple of verses of an invitation hymn. And I want to give you an opportunity to come and give your life to Jesus and recognize him for who he is. The Christ, the Son of the living God. You can come to this aisle and say, Pastor, I need to talk with you. You can fill out a guest card on the side of your bulletin, or you can catch me at the back door. But do not leave this last Sunday of 2019 without responding to the Holy Spirit's call. I'm going to pray. If you need to come, you come. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the privilege of of being in your house, of being